Psalm 34. Last week, in the heart of our sermon in 1 Samuel 21, 7 to 22, 23, we mentioned and mostly glossed over 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15, where we find David in the land of the Philistines, likely seeking some sort of political asylum and finding instead a group of people who knew him and who, for one reason or another, made David fearful. We don't know whether he was fearful for his life or fearful of, of, of indentured servitude or, or fearful of being ransomed back, but he, he became greatly fearful for one reason or another. It is just one verse which tells us of the emotional state of David at that time. It's 1 Samuel 21, verse 12, and that verse tells us this. David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David was sore afraid, the text tells us. And then it moves immediately into David's hasty solution, which was to feign madness in the faint hope that the king might believe him and release him. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. Now, we mentioned last week, we don't know exactly what it was that David feared, but his fear was great. Sore afraid is how the text translates it. Now, whatever this particular fear was, we find in Psalm 34 a man who has been delivered from his deepest fears and rejoices not in any personal capacity, but only in the goodness of the Lord. I was talking just the other night about the fact that I didn't really have a Thanksgiving message this year, but as I was reviewing this message and thinking about it more and praying about the direction I uh, was going with it, I realized that in many ways uh, this is very much a Thanksgiving message. Very much a Thanksgiving message. The purpose this morning is to draw our hearts to the emotional state of David at that moment in First Samuel when he was afraid and in the, the time afterward and how he responded and how the Lord responded to him in the midst of that fear. But it will easily be able to go beyond that and teach us much about our own hearts and much about personal thanksgiving before the Lord. As we step into Psalm 34 this morning, I don't know what situations you might be facing. I know some of them for some of you, but I don't, I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know how you've responded to those situations, whether right or wrong. David in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 21 didn't respond perfectly, did he? to the situation between himself and Achish, if you remember from last week. I don't know how you've responded to circumstances and situations when you've been fearful, when you've not known the next step, but God's Word will remind us today of His goodness, of His deliverance, of His blessing, and our privilege to call upon Him and then to sit and watch as He delivers. Now, we do not know when following the events of 1 Samuel 21, David specifically wrote this psalm, whether it was very soon after or whether it was years later when he was just reflecting upon that particular event. But we find that David's mind rests not upon the poor choices and the failures which he perhaps made in the midst of his confrontation with the king. It rests not even upon the deliverance itself, We'll find in Psalm 34 no direct reference 
to any of the specific events of 1 Samuel 21, only a direct reference to the fact that it was written within the context of 1 Samuel 21. David's focus in this psalm will be entirely upon the unmerited goodness of God to him. And indeed, that should be our focus as we step into it this morning as well. If you're there in Psalm 34, let's read together verses 1 through 3. I'll begin at the prelude, a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. The psalm begins with introduction and praise. It is a determined effort to set the tone for the psalm by turning the eyes of the singer, by turning the eyes of the listeners towards purposed praise. And it's introduced as a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before a man named Abimelech. Now, if you recall in 1 Samuel 21, we mentioned last week, his name is not said to be Abimelech in the text. It's said to be Achish in the text. So we ask the question, is this actually the same person? And indeed, we do understand that it is. The name Abimelech is one that we find beginning in Genesis 20 all throughout the Old Testament and usually it is the name given to one who is in a kingly capacity and if we want to get more specific, it's used of the kings of the Philistines. In the same way that that the king of Egypt would be called Pharaoh, the king of the Philistines, it appears, was called Abimelech. And so it was a title as much as it was a name understanding that the pharaohs in Egypt would have had a name. They would have been given various names, Pharaoh Necho, King, uh, Pharaoh Tutankhamun. We, we, we know of some of the pharaohs, and we know some of their names, and yet their name was not Pharaoh, but they were often called Pharaoh. Abimelech was the, that sort of a name. Abimelech would have been the title for the king, and his name would have been Achish, and he was king, or the Abimelech, of Gath. Now, I didn't mention this last week, but it's interesting that David went to the king of Gath, as if you recall, Goliath was from that very region. And he's walking in with Goliath's sword, right? And hoping that he won't be recognized, and hoping that he can get political asylum, and when he hears them talking, he becomes very afraid. So, the man's name is Achish, but he is a ruler, he is Abimelech, and this, this doesn't have to uh, be a contradiction or be seen as a contradiction. Abimelech and Achish were both, are both appropriate titles for the man. And the text says that the king literally drove him away, drove David away from him, because the king thought that David was mad. And this was the greatest blessing that David could have received, that the king literally drove him away. Now, following this brief introduction, David falls directly into praise. And he begins speaking with duration here. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. And we see this continual idea, this all times idea that that David's praise is going to have uh, an interminable duration. He will bless the Lord continually. The poetic implication of David's exclamation is that God's goodness never fails. His goodness never ends. And so David's praise will never end. 
When kept by the hands of the Almighty, what can we do but praise? When safe in the arms of the Holy One, how can we but rejoice? Circumstances come, circumstances go, but the King of kings does not and indeed cannot change. His goodness lasts regardless. His goodness lasts regardless. And so David's praise continued regardless. At all times, continually, he boasted in God's goodness. He boasted in God's strength. He literally says, I'm going to brag on the Lord here. The Lord's praise will be on my mouth. The Lord's praise will be will be exclaimed through me. And David states that his praise, his boasting in the Lord, will cause the humble to hear and to be glad, and thus to join in magnifying the Lord. Now what David introduces here is another overriding theme, not simply of this psalm, but another one of those transcendent themes throughout Scriptures. And that theme is this, that humility is the pathway to God. Humility is the pathway to God. Consider these Proverbs with me this morning. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. Proverbs 18.2 Before destruction the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. Proverbs 22.4 By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Jesus would say in Matthew 23.12, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. In James chapter 4, verse 6 we read, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. True honor, divine honor, comes only through humility. And perhaps you noticed how often humility and the fear of the Lord were paired. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. True exaltation, divine exaltation, is an outworking of a humble heart. The humble will hear the praise of the Lord and be glad. The humble will join in exaltation to the God of gods. To exalt the Lord is to minimize self. To exalt the Lord is to minimize self-worth, minimize self-accomplishment, minimize self-capacity. It is to magnify God's capacity. It is to magnify God's worth. It is to magnify... God's accomplishments. And David's purpose is to magnify the Lord here. And he calls all of those who are willing and thus all of those who are humble to do the same. To magnify the Lord with Him. Now David's words of praise give way to a remembrance of the event in question. Particularly his deliverance from Abimelech. Notice what he says in verses 4-7. through I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto Him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth them. So in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 21 last week, we read that David was sore afraid. His solution was to seek the Lord, the text tells us. And his testimony, we find, is that the Lord heard him and delivered him from all of his fears. Delivered him, saved him out of all of his troubles. He cried unto the Lord. The Lord heard. 
and the Lord delivered. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? And indeed, our God is so good. He is so powerful. He is so mighty. Even outside of the possibility of the ways that David may have done wrong here, the Lord heard him and the Lord, the Scriptures tell us, delivered him. Two verses later, we find this similar statement. David cries unto the Lord that this poor man, he says, cried. And the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. And notice how he describes himself there. We've already found David's emphasis upon humility, that it is the humble in heart, that it is those who fear the Lord that will have the the capacity, that will, will take the time to join David in praising the name of God. But David describes himself as a poor man, showing that it is not only praise unto God that rests with the humble, but also the deliverance of God that rests with the humble. God hears David because David came to him with a poorness of spirit. Now again, we mentioned that we did not know, we do not know when this was written. It it might be more impacting if it had been written at the time where David had become wealthy and become powerful. If he was writing this at the time where he was sitting at rest in his house and all of his enemies had been had been destroyed and he was at peace. We don't know that for sure. Either way, what David is showing here is that when he looks at himself before the Lord, he sees himself as a poor man. He sees himself as a man that is has, has no capacity, has uh, no accomplishment, has no self-worth in the shadow of the Almighty God. Now, between these two verses, we read in verse 6, They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. It's an interesting deviation from the way the text has been going. In in verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord. In verse 5, we see this, they looked unto him. In verse 6, David is again speaking of himself as a third person. He, this poor man, cried, and the Lord heard him. So in between these two verses, we have a they a third person plural, speaking of a group of people, he takes the focus off of himself as the poor man, off of himself as the man that is in need, and he says, in generally generally speaking, as he muses on his own deliverance, that all those who are humble, all those who are contrite in heart, as they look unto him, they'll be lightened. Their faces won't be ashamed. They will be delivered. They will find the deliverance they seek. And such is poetically declared in verse 7, that the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth them. God is on the side of the humble. God is on the side of those who fear Him. And this is what David is going to continue to push through the rest of this psalm. In light of this blessing, David replies in verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Now, as we consider God's goodness, God's goodness is objective. But if we may put it this way, to the humble and to those that fear him, God's goodness is palatable. It's it's obvious. It's tangible. 
God is good regardless of the circumstances with which we find ourselves. When Job had lost it all, he fell down upon the ground, he rent his mantle, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognized, as we must as well, that God's goodness is not contingent upon circumstances. So much so that David even said, I will bless the Lord at all time. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. He's not speaking about circumstances there. He's speaking about the goodness, the perpetual goodness of God. But as He speaks to the humble, as He speaks to the contrite, as He speaks to those that fear the Lord, He says, you can taste it. Oh, taste and see. It's there. It's not just theory. It's not abstract. It's there for you. It's tangible. You can know His goodness. We dare not judge God's goodness on the basis of what we perceive for there are times where we are in distress and yet God's goodness is no less real. And yet David exhorts the humble and as he does so, he calls them to taste and see that the Lord is good. To exercise one's senses. We might say it in our language this way today. Just open your eyes and you'll see the goodness of the Lord. Just open your eyes. And you'll see it. Just look around you and you'll see His faithfulness. You'll see His goodness. It's everywhere. It's in the fact that we woke up this morning. It's in the fact that our heart is still breathing. It's in, it's in the, the, the sunshine. It's, it's in the warm building that we're in. It's in the, the, our, our bellies which are satisfied with food. It's in the capacity that we have to move our fingers. It's in, it's in the vibration that's happening right now in your eardrum that is giving you the capacity to understand me. It's in the vibration that's happening that's allowing me to make noise in such a way that you can understand me. All of these are expressions of the goodness of God. We're coming into this week of Thanksgiving. It's a time where perhaps we, we are... It's not that we're necessarily more thankful, but we, we remind ourselves of all that we're thankful for. And this is the week where some of those little things might come up a little bit more than usual. The little things that we might take for granted. The fact that you can see. The fact that you can walk. The fact that you can speak. Uh, not everybody has those blessings. All of the blessings that you have been given. And that's what David is saying here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But it's more than just the Lord's goodness that can be perceived. Notice also that it is perceptible that the man who trusts in the Lord is blessed. O oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, verse 9 says, for there is no want to them that fear him. To this end, David gives this direct exhortation to the followers of the Lord that they would fear him. For there is no want, that word meaning lack, no lack to those that fear him. This declaration is made throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. And it is one in which we can hope, we can rely upon, we can rest our lives upon we spoke not too long ago about what it means to fear the Lord. That can be a, a unique concept, can be even what we might call a difficult concept uh, in theory. To fear the Lord means to revere Him, to recognize His power and His holiness and His justice, and so to act on a daily basis in light of who God is. To fear someone is not inherently to be afraid of them in an emotional way, but it is to be fearful, as we might say, of what they can do or of who they are. And the example that, that might help us with this is that of a police officer. 
Now, I should hope that in most contexts, if you were to go up and just speak to a police officer on the street, that would not be a problem for you. You would not, you, it's not that you are afraid of the police officer inherently, but you do fear the police officer. You do understand that he has authority and he has a capacity to act upon his authority toward you. And so while you would not necessarily fear the man himself, you fear him in the capacity in which he operates because he can give you a ticket if you're speeding, because he can take you out in handcuffs if you get unruly, because he can exercise authority toward you. He has power and so you fear him. You respect his position. That's what it means to fear You have a healthy respect for God's authority, for God's power, and so knowing that God sees all and knows all, you fear to do certain things because God has the authority to judge you. You act toward God with an understanding that He sees you and that He is all-powerful. And so you fear to displease Him. You fear to disobey Him. You fear to dishonor Him. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And David tells us that those who will fear the Lord, those who will have true awe, true reverence and respect for the power and the authority of God, and so will purposefully go out of their way to obey God's commandments, these men and women will not lack in those things which they need. This is the essence of what it means to want, as the King James Version translates it. To want in this context means to have a desire for something on the basis of an unfulfilled need. This does not mean to have a desire for anything at all. You can't take these verses that say God will provide for your wants in the Scripture and say, well, I want, and just fill in the blank with anything that your your heart lusts after and you expect God to give it to you. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that when you are walking in the fear of the Lord, you will have what you need need, that God will provide for your needs. True necessities. David says it here. We find it in Matthew chapter 6 and scattered throughout the Bible that God will provide for the needs of those who fear Him. And so verse 10 says, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want, there's that word again, any good thing. He poetically drives this point home. And in doing so, he uses what is typically pictured to be the, the greatest of the animals biblically. Biblically, the lion is the top. The top of the food chain, he is, he is that noble, great, powerful beast. And David says, even the young lions, even they lack. Even, even they have times where they go hungry. But the ones not, not the ones of great power like the lion, not the ones of great strength and influence, the ones who will not rely on their own ability, but will rather fall back upon the Lord in abject helplessness and reliance, they shall never suffer unfulfilled need. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, we've spoken already of general obedience, but David's going to become more thorough in his ex- exhortation here. 
He says in verses 11 through 14, Come ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, David says this is what it means to fear the Lord. He says, first, keep your tongue from evil. The evil of lying, the evil of deceit, the evil of gossip, the evil of slander, the evil of blasphemy. Sins of the tongue. It says, keep your tongue from them. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, we read this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Our communication ought always be directed toward one single end. Young people, you and your siblings, you and your parents, parents, you and your children, husband and wife, your relationship one with another, always, should always be directed towards this singular end, to build each other up, to minister grace. That is the way God wants you to speak. That you would always be building one another up. That you would always be ministering grace through your words, siblings. Always be, be building one another up, ministering grace through your words, spouse. Always be building one another up, ministering grace through your words, parents. What does it mean to fear the Lord? David said it means that you, you watch your mouth. You guard what comes out and you make sure that it is edifying. Whether it's as an employee to his boss, whether it's as a citizen to our leaders, whether it's as a parent to a child, a child to a parent, siblings to one another. God wants us ministering grace to the hearers. And then David says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So keep your tongue from evil, but also keep your actions from evil. David says, that's what it means to fear the Lord. Seek out peace where it may be found. Pursue peace with all your heart. Peace with your neighbors. Peace with your family. Peace with your church. It doesn't always mean that peace will be found. But if it isn't, it should not be because of you. It should not be lack of effort on your part. Seek peace. Pursue peace. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, Romans 12.9 says, Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. That's the idea. Abhor the evil, cleave to the good. Hang on to that which is right. Hang on to that which is good with all your heart. Anything that you see that's evil, anything you see that's contrary to the character and the Word of God, abhor it. Look at it the way God looks at it. Hate sin. Cling to that which is right. That's the fear of the Lord. And David says, this man is blessed. This man will not want. This man will find the spiritual definition of success. David presents an important contrast then in verses 15 and 16. He says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the, the remembrance of them from the earth. We, we speak of the reality of our sins and the reality that they are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ completely apart from any merit. And we know that. The Bible makes this very clear that we are saved by grace through faith. The Bible makes it very clear that our, 
Our redemption is not based upon what we do. It's not based upon what we don't do. It's not based upon our merits. Our redemption is found through full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But the Bible also does make it clear that God rewards the doer of the Word, not just the knower or the hearer. That when it comes to spiritual success, and let me stress, not eternal life, but spiritual success in this life, when it comes to spiritual success, the blessings, the provision, the peace that David speaks of in Psalm 34, these things are reserved for the humble and the reverential, fearful of heart, in their heart. We've considered the verses already that tell us that God exalts the humble. In James 1, verses 22-25, through we read this, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The, ma- the blessed man is not the hearer, but the doer. The picture that James gives here is the man that sees himself in a mirror. And he sees himself in a mirror and he sees that he's got problems. And when he looks into the mirror, he knows that. But then as soon as he turns away from the mirror, he forgets all about it. It's the person that wakes up and their hair is all over the place and they look in the mirror and they say, wow, i got to do something about that. But then as soon as they turn away from the mirror, they completely forget to do anything about it and they leave the house with their hair all over the place. It doesn't help if you know your hair is a mess if you don't comb it. It doesn't help if you know you have broccoli in your teeth if you don't get it out. It doesn't do you any good just to know that it's there. And the Bible is saying that the Word of God is like our mirror. When we look into the Word of God, we see ourselves for who we really are. See, you go out into the world and you know what the world wants you to know, wants you to think, wants you to think that, that, that you're great just the way you are, right? That you're beautiful, that you're perfect, that you're talented, that you're this, that you're that, that you're, that, that, that you need to think of yourself and you need to have high self-esteem and just be content with who you are. And that's the world. And you're going to be getting a, a lot of that in the next month and a half as we head toward Christmas. Walmart yesterday, what, like 33 days now till Christmas or something like that? They have a big old sign up this many days till Christmas. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's nearly here. But as we think about that, the Bible says when you look into the Word of God, you begin to see yourself the way you truly are, the reality. You see through the mirror of God's Word and, and what, what comes back at you when you read the Bible is the true you. And it's not always the convenient you. It's not always the you you want to think you are, but it's the you that you are. I was talking to a man at the jail a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about his issues, um, substance abuse and uh, abusive to his wife and these sorts of things. And, and he, he kept saying, that's not the, but that's not me. That's not me. And he kept saying that. That's not me. How many times have you been in jail for this? Well, four. But that's not me. Getting him to the point where he, and it didn't work, but trying to get him to the point where he recognized if you do it and you persist in it, it is you. You may not want it to be you. You may not think that that's who you ought to be. You may think of yourself as something different, but 
it is you. It's what you do. It's what you have done. It's what you are doing. And that's what the Bible does for us. And when we see that, when we look into the perfect law of liberty, and James says, when you look into the perfect law of liberty and you see who you are in light of who God is, and you understand that, and you continue in what the Word of God says, you clean the broccoli out of your teeth, you comb your hair, you do, you correct the issues that the Bible shows you. That's the man that's blessed. The man that's blessed is not the man that walks out of his house saying, yeah, I know now what's wrong with me. The man that's blessed is the man that changes what's wrong with him, conforms himself to the Word of God. The blessed man is the doer of the Word, not the knower of the Word, not the hearer of the Word. You will receive no blessing just for coming and sitting under the preaching of God's Word unless you take what the Word of God says and as necessary, apply it. The blessing for learning doctrine doesn't come in the knowing of doctrine. It comes in the doing of what you know. James says the doer of the work is the one who will be blessed. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears are open unto their cry. That's the humble doers of the Word. On the contrary, the Scriptures tell us the Lord resists the one who does evil. He says in verse 16, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The idea here is that those things done for evil are things which have no eternal merit, no eternal legacy. That the things that are done that are wrong before the Lord, as Paul would describe it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, would become wood, hay, and stubble. Right? Paul said that in heaven there's wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. And when all of that, which comprises the works that we've done in this life, passes through the fire of God's judgment, because even as believers, your works will pass through the fire of God's judgment. And when it does so, the only thing that will come out on the other side are the things that were done for Christ. The gold, the silver, and the precious stones. Everything else was useless. Everything else has no spiritual legacy. And that's the idea here. The face of the Lord is against the evil. He resists the proud. He cuts off the remembrance of them from the earth. If there is absolutely, I mean, if if a man does not accept Christ as his Savior, then nothing has been done in faith, then there is no spiritual legacy. His remembrance before the Lord is completely cut off. We as believers, of course, we will enter into the joy of our Lord through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But everything that we do outside of the fear of the Lord, contrary to the Word of God, passes into spiritual oblivion. Spiritually nominal. Useless for eternity. Twice in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, verse 6, and in 1 Peter 5, 5, we read these words. God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The idea literally that the proud man is one who God will set his face against, physically resist. We see it in verse 16 of Psalm 34. We see it in James 4. We see it in 1 Peter 5. We see it all throughout Scripture. That if you want to be resisted by the Lord, the quickest and easiest way to be there is to have a proud heart. David's thoughts turn back to the righteous in verses 17 through 19. 
where he says this, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh, near unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. David again highlights the idea here, the broken in heart, the contrite in spirit, both of which are phrases used to indicate humility in a man. Men who recognize their own incapacity, their own insufficiency, their own sinfulness. And in contrast, in the, excuse me, in context to the humble men, David states, not that they do not have afflictions, notice. Not that their problems all go away because they're humble. But that in the midst of their afflictions, God will deliver them. In the midst of their afflictions, God will bring them out spiritually unscathed, spiritually blessed. Now in verse 20, in effort to describe this dynamic, David describes the righteous man in this way. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. David describes the man who may be beaten and bruised by the circumstances of this life, but whose body remains intact. If we could take this, and that's by his bones not being broken, if we spiritually analogize this, it would be the idea of a man who spiritually you might have been afflicted, attacked, but you never broke in spirit. You remain humble. You remain committed to the Lord. You, you bent, but you didn't break. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So apt is this description of the man who suffers affliction but is not destroyed by it that this verse was regarded in Jewish history as deeply messianic, describing the life and the ministry of the one who would be the Jewish Messiah who would come one day. A man who would suffer affliction of rejection, who would suffer the affliction of bearing the sins of the world, but overcome the sin of the world to rule and reign in righteousness. He would be... He would bend, but he wouldn't break. His heel would be um, bruised, but he would not be destroyed. And the link between Jesus and this verse in Psalm 34 is given by way of the evangelist John in John 19. I'm going to read verses 33 through 36. It's verse 36 where we find the direct reference. The scriptures say, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, Jesus now hanging on the cross has given up his, his life, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he saw it and bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe, for these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. This portion of Scripture here in the psalm was indeed poetic and spiritual, indicating that the Messiah, Jesus, would suffer but not be destroyed, that the humble in heart suffer but won't be destroyed. And see, this is the thing. Jesus Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, is the epitome of humility. He is the very pinnacle of all that is humble, of all that is meek, of all that is fearful before the Lord, of all that is right. And so as we consider Psalm 34, Jesus is the very epitome of what David is saying here. And thus we see the connection between the 100% humble man, the 100% fearing the Lord man, that is Jesus Christ, 
And this verse, He keepeth all of His bones, not one of them is broken. And yet we find that in God's infinite wisdom, it's not just a spiritual concept. This prophecy is also literal. That though Jesus would be beaten and bruised and whipped, in a physical sense, not one bone of His body was broken even unto death. And it's beautiful to see how the Lord weaves it all together. Now we conclude our exposition this morning with verses 21 and 22. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servant, and none of them that trust in Him shall be desolate. His conclusion is simply an extension of all that He has declared. It's almost basically just a, a uh, summary of everything that He said already. And we've said much on that. As we step into our application this morning, We'll take some time to establish our thoughts on this important psalm and what it means to us. I'm going to give you four points of application. And I would encourage you to see these points within reference to, uh, since we do have Thanksgiving coming up this Thursday, the Thanksgiving season. Certainly, um, it, it goes beyond just this season. But perhaps can heighten your appreciation this week and the way in which you approach the Lord. Point number one, humility is the very essence of worship. Humility is the very essence of worship. David begins this psalm by extolling the greatness of the Lord and calling the humble to join with Him in praise. The word worship is derived from the idea, literally the idea of granting worth unto, worth-ship. It is when you take your voice and you ascribe worth unto another or your actions and you ascribe worth unto Another. Worship is not a certain action per se or a certain sound per se. Worship is a disposition of one's heart before God. That when you are ascribing worth to God, you are worshiping. Now every week we come together at Legacy Baptist Church in what we typically call a worship service with the expressed intent of worshiping the Lord. And we do this through various aspects. We, we, we build this in in various ways. One of the ways we do this is by being God-focused rather than me-focused. We, we try to make sure our, our music is God-focused rather than me-focused. We uh, read the Scripture and we quote the Scripture together, seeking to exalt the Word of God and the principles of God's Word above ourselves. We spend time in prayer, taking the cares and the concerns that we have as individuals and we lay them before the Lord, seeking to ascribe worth unto God, knowing that He can handle our circumstances far better than we can possibly handle our circumstances. And we do so, of course, by uh, elevating the preaching as the primary aspect of the service, making sure that it is the focal point, uh, the, ex- um, the expounding upon the Word of God. But the structure of the service at Legacy Baptist Church can only go so far in accomplishing this task of worship because the rest falls upon each of us to ensure that our hearts are approaching this time together with the intent of giving God worth. It is our privilege that we might decrease so that He can increase. And perhaps the ones who suffer the greatest temptation of failing in this task in a worship service setting are the pastor and those who participate more prominently in worship. We must enter every service with a focused determination that what we do, what I say up here, how my wife plays, all of those sorts of things, to the best of our ability, are directing hearts and minds toward God and not towards us. 
do the best we can not to have at the end of a service, wow, you did a really good job, Pastor, but wow, the Word of God is really wonderful and God Himself is really wonderful. That ought to be the idea. When your impression or your admiration falls upon a man instead of on God, there's a little bit less worship there than ought to be taking place. Anytime your heart is drawn toward elevation of yourself or elevation of another at the expense of God, it's also at the expense of worship. Because worship is when we ascribe worth unto God. The very essence of worship is to minimize man and to maximize God, to exalt God. And wherever this falters, worship is minimized and something else takes its place. So humility is the very essence of worship and we see that from Psalm 34. Our second point from Psalm 34, the fear of the Lord is the very essence of wisdom. If humility is the essence of worship, the fear of the Lord is the essence of wisdom. All throughout the Proverbs, we see the concept of the fear of the Lord and espouse that the fear of the Lord leads to or is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we've defined the fear of the Lord already. We said it's a healthy respect for God's authority and power. And so, knowing that God sees all and knows all, you fear doing certain things because of the authority that He has to judge you. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's when what you know affects what you do. It has gone from knowledge to wisdom. On the authority of God's Word, the wise man is the man that fears the Lord. The man who bases his thoughts and his actions every moment of every day upon what God thinks and what God wants rather than upon what he thinks and what he wants. This is wisdom. David tells us that there is no want, there is no lack to them that fear him. Those who play by God's rules receive the blessing of playing by God's rules. And so to fear the Lord is to be wise. And this is a spectrum. It's not that you either fear the Lord or don't. We can fear the Lord in certain areas and not in others. We can compartmentalize our lives, allowing certain place, uh, areas of our lives to be completely submitted to the Lord and other areas to be completely taken to ourselves. And the Bible says to whatever degree you are willing to place yourself under the fear of the Lord, to do it God's way and not your own way, is the degree to which you will find wisdom in this life. Because the fear of the Lord is the very essence of wisdom. Point number three. First, humility is the essence of worship. Second, the fear of the Lord is the essence of wisdom. Point number three, humility and the fear of the Lord position men for true contentment and success. When you take humility and you take the fear of the Lord and you combine them together, which already in Scripture we've seen the Bible often does, what you will find in this life is true spiritual success. May I give a a definition of success to you this morning? Success in any instance, through any event, at any milestone, is when you have pleased God. Success is not about money or fame or honor. Success is when you have gotten through a circumstance and you have pleased God. That is true success. Now, that's not the world's definition of success. That's not the businessman's definition of success. That's, unfortunately, oftentimes not even the, the, church model, the church model definition of success. But that is success. Is when you have gone through a circumstance, you have gone through a period of time, you have gone through something, and at the end of it, God is 
pleased. The wise man will hear this and will believe it. The wise man will read what the Bible says and do it. The wise man won't have to prove it for himself. The wise man won't have to go to the other side of the fence just to see how green it is before realizing that the grass was greener when following the Lord. The wise man will trust the Bible. The wise man will obey the Bible and watch as he finds true spiritual success. When you have experienced what it is to be sold out to God, when you have experienced what it is to have true success in this life, true contentment in this life, all other definitions of success just pale in comparison. When you've experienced the peace peace and contentment that come from faith, a life of self-sufficiency seems senseless. When you have experienced the joy of being used by the Spirit of God to do things, all other of, other of life's joys just seem kind of hollow. But to get there, to get to that place of contentment, of success in this life, you must go through the gate of humility and of fear of the Lord. And to whatever degree you obtain those, you will find great success. Humility is the essence of worship. Fear of the Lord is the essence of wisdom. Humility and the fear of the Lord position men for true contentment and true success. Finally, number four, God is worthy of our praise. You know, David was not a perfect man, was he? In fact, he is a very imperfect man writing a psalm as he reflected upon a situation where he very imperfectly fell upon the mercy of God to deliver him from a situation of his own making. He offers no excuses for his failings. In fact, he doesn't even bring up his failings. He doesn't air his dirty laundry as to what he did and why he did it, of his motivations or his confusions, so much so that it can be almost troubling. It's, it's, it's almost a little troubling to me that he goes to King Achish and he pretends to be mad and, and he, he brings himself there. Then, then he, he feigns madness and he gets out and there's all this deceit going on and all these things that are going on. It troubles me. God, I want to hear you say that he's a, he did wrong here. I want to hear David admit it. But you know, as David thought back upon the circumstance, undoubtedly to whatever degree he did wrong, he repented, he got that right, he got back into fellowship with the Lord. What he remembers, he doesn't remember the circumstances. He doesn't even inherently remember the deliverance. What he remembers is the goodness of God. What he remembers is God's faithfulness. What he remembers is even though he's an imperfect man, God delivered him. Even though he didn't do everything right, God delivered him. You know, a lot of times here at Legacy Baptist Church and as we read our Bible, the standard is, is here. You know, we, we, we set this high standard of what God wants from us and there can be this feeling sometimes maybe a little bit of, well, why should I even try? Because I keep falling short. But you know, what Psalm 34 reminds us is that even though God would have us to live here, and this is where we want to live, and this is the fear of the Lord, and this is humility. You know, David may have been here on that day that he, he came to the king. He may have been, he, he must have been, he should have been, I, I believe he was, off his game a little bit as far as being faithful to the Lord. He, he, there's some things he did wrong. He made some wrong decisions. He, he didn't get everything right. But at the end of it, The Lord delivered him. He says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. 
God is so good. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of everything that we have. When the dust settles, when all is said and done, in the midst of the good and the bad, the mistakes and the victories, we will all, without fail, come to the same inescapable conclusion that God is worthy of all of our praise. That we will bless the Lord at all times. That His praise should continually be in our mouths. Whether we give God our all or not in any given situation, God is worthy of our praise. Whether things are going well or not in any situation, God is worthy of our praise. David declares it with all that is in him. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will boast not in getting out of the circumstance. My soul will boast in the Lord. And the Lord alone. Now, as we translate that into this week of Thanksgiving, may I encourage you to bless the Lord at all time. That His praise would continually be in your mouth. That this week would be a week not of even boasting in what you have from the Lord or what you are able to do through the Lord. Let's have our boasting this week, our praise this week, our glory this week be in the Lord. Who He is. What He has done. How He has designed this world to work. That He exalts the humble. That those that fear the Lord are blessed. You may not have as much as others. Physically. Materially. There may not be as much physically, materially to be, quote, thankful for, unquote, as others in this world. But before God, the standard of blessing is not on a material scale. The poorest man who is humble and fears the Lord can be richer before the Lord than the richest man. 